The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Chapter number one, uh, but you also need to get a marker in Matthew 17. We'll eventually get to Matthew 17 for just a bit, uh, but um, uh, 2 Peter chapter number 1. I'm going to read the text for us. Uh, the Sinai text from, uh, that Bob, Bob read from Exodus, and the Matthew text that um, Charlene read uh, from Matthew 17, uh, Peter comments on as he is reminding uh, the church to not be barren and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter anticipates dying soon, either by martyrdom or uh, perhaps he thought he was just going to die of natural causes, but in fact uh, he didn't. He did die as a martyr for Christ. And he wanted to put the church in remembrance. I'll pick up the reading in verse 16. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first. That no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word of the Lord for our good. Now, Father, as we, as we take up the holy things, we do so in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The sermon title, Taking Up the Challenge of Jesus, is meant as an sorry about that, is meant as an exhortation to the church. The sermon this morning is intended to emphatically urge you to look at Jesus, the one who is revealed in Scripture to be the God man. And to be challenged by him as a person. And I pray that we will see him as a challenge. And that we will then be compelled to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. And give ourselves fully to Jesus. As the Lenten season approaches and Holy Week looms in the not too distant future. 
In those times, we will be exhorted to take up the challenge of Jesus in his humiliation as we once again consider deeply the God-forsakenness of the cross. On Easter and for 50 days that follow, the great 50 days following Easter, we'll be exhorted to take up the challenge of Jesus as the one who is risen. He is risen. So we, got, we better get back in practice, right? Not too far away. And then uh, at the Ascension service on that Thursday night, May 18, down at St. James in the chapel with all the beautiful stained glass window and pipe organ, we will again be exhorted to take up the challenge of Jesus as the ascended and exalted Lord and King. Why are these markers important for the church? Well, when troubling times come and the storms rage all around us, we need to be reminded that we are not alone in the boat of life. Jesus is present. He is with us. He is here with us. He is in us. And as uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians, we are in him. We are in Christ. And so this morning as we walk up the Mount of Transfiguration, or as Peter calls it, the Holy Mount, the Holy Mount of Transfiguration, we do so with Peter, James, and John to meet the Lord Jesus Christ who is Indeed, the most challenging person to ever walk the face of the earth. Perhaps the well-known quote by C.S. Lewis is helpful, and um, it, it might be up on the screen. I didn't check if they got my email there or not, but it might be up on the screen. Lewis wrote this uh, to the uh, English uh, nation who were forsaking the church. He said, either this man, speaking of Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being just a great human teacher. So are you ready to take up the challenge of Jesus this morning? You see, to be transfigured is to have the very essence of a person revealed. You see, if Jesus were only a prophet or only a teacher or only a healer, then the glory would have been limited to an external glory. Somewhat like when we do nice things for people and they look at us and they go, well, you are a nice person. This, this external thing, you know, appears to them that they don't see us, you know, at other times when we're not maybe all so nice. If that's all it is, that Jesus is a good man and a good teacher, then just an external glory. But if the glory that is recorded in Matthew 17 and that uh, Peter writes about in 2 Peter 1, if it's a divine glory, if it is part of his essence, his nature, 
that he is God in the flesh and this burst out of him, what it shows us then is the goodness of his actions, the completeness of his teaching, the prophetic statements of warning and judgment to come flow out of the perfection of his being, flow out of his godness, which means that he must be God, and yet we affirm fully human. So, so to reemphasize, because this word transfiguration can be confusing, to be transfigured is not to be transformed. All of us, hopefully, are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. But to be transfigured is to have an existing in inward reality suddenly burst out and take over the external or outward reality. So as the disciples are there with Jesus on the Holy Mount, having been with him up to this point at least three years, and having seen him in all kinds of situations and circumstances, but only having seen him veiled in his humanity, humanity, suddenly they see bursting out of him the glorious glory of God. The very essence of his divine nature. Jesus didn't get shorter. Jesus didn't get taller. Jesus didn't get wider. Jesus didn't get thinner. In shape and form the same. Body not altered. But now revealing that he is God in the flesh. His deity which had been hidden in his humanity was at that moment exposed for his disciples to see. I mean, whatever wow moments we've had in life, I mean, that's a wow moment. That's a like, oh my, what a moment. But it's interesting that when Peter writes about this, he anticipates an objection. And you see this uh, right in verse number 16 when he, in writing to the church, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he walks them briefly through that experience that he and James and John eyewitnessed on the holy mount of transfiguration. Is the Christian faith nothing more than cunningly devised fables? This is a serious question that confronts the readers that Peter is addressing, and it is a serious question that confronts us today and in a contemporary world. It is a very important question that the church needs to make sure it gets right. When we affirm and teach the eyewitness accounts of the apostles and make known to you the power and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ, are we simply restating cunningly devised fables? Are we trying to get you to believe that Hulk Hogan is in fact Brian's uncle, as was referenced last week, or some such thing like that? Is that what we're doing? The emphasis there in uh, verse, number, um, uh, verse number 16, the emphasis in the original Greek 
is on the common human tendency to manufacture a story. The common human tendency to manufacture a story. Peter is writing to the Greco-Roman Empire that was filled with stories about the gods and their interaction with humans. In uh, the modern translations, uh, many of you are using, uh, they uh, use the word clever instead of cunning. And um, I think it weakens the impact of Peter's argument. I'm no great scholar, believe me. But just like on the surface of reading it, I think it weakens the argument, and here's why. We all enjoy a clever story. I mean, my wife and I, you know, starting sometime in the 80s and all the way through the time that it ended, would try to every Saturday night, if we could, or maybe on Sunday, listen to the repeat broadcast of Garrison Keeler and a Prairie Home Companion who, doesn't, who didn't love the, the clever stories that he told. But I was never compelled to think that I should go to Minnesota, you know, and try to live in Lake Wobegon. It was just a clever story. But if you leave the word cunning in there, then you get the idea that something much more sinister is taking place. And here's what, why. Because cunning means to deceive with the intention to destroy. Think about how destructive it would be if Peter is acting with cunning as he writes his letter. Think about the souls that would be misdirected in their hope if Peter is making stuff up about Jesus to kind of boost his position or to make the story more interesting. Think about what a monstrous thing it is to take holy things and reinterpret them for one's own benefit. It is because Peter knows it would be destructive that he not only reminds the church that the story of Jesus is not a cunning fable, but it is, in fact, a truth to which he was an eyewitness. And Peter believes this to be so important that he spends almost all of chapter 2 reinforcing that argument and saying that there are people out in the world, his world, and certainly our world today, that are just destructive. Cunning fables. Churches that at one time were filled with authentic worshipers are empty because their pastors no longer believed that the word of God was the word of God and they began to present it as a clever story to try to make people go out and do nice things for other people. And guess what? The church is emptied out. And the coffee shops and the yoga studios and the other places that are bowling alleys or whatever are filled today with people no longer in church because they think what we do here is just, you know, what we do. We don't really believe it. We don't have any real conviction. It's just a clever story. You want to believe that? Fine. Peter believes this to be so important. And Jude believes it to be so important that they write at length about the false teachers who use cunning 
to introduce destructive heresies. As Paul would say, with itching ears, do people drink it in? To take up the challenge of Jesus means fidelity to the teaching that Jesus is the God-man who was not transformed, but transfigured before the very eyes of Peter, James, and John, and they were the eyewitnesses that told the church about it. And if we don't believe Jesus, if we don't believe Jesus as God in the flesh who died for the sins of his people, then we will stand condemned before the law and the prophets, which is why Moses and Elijah were on the mount with Jesus. And we will be judged by God for all eternity because God spoke and said, this is my son whom I love. I am well pleased. Listen to him. So to take up the challenge of Jesus must mean that you by faith receive all of who he is, God in the flesh, who died for sins in such a way that your sins could be forgiven. And to reject that, to push that out, to go in another direction or to believe another thing condemns you before the law and the prophets and it puts you under judgment of God for all eternity. That's why this is so important. So as Peter then answers the potential objection, you know, that people think he's just kind of telling a cunning story, he also warns the church about what uh, commentators on this passage, two commentators, Dick Lucas and Christopher Green, call spiritual absent-mindedness. Spiritual absent-mindedness. This is why... Twice in this letter, Peter writes, I want to stir you up by way of remembrance. I want to stir you up by way of remembrance. My wife knows that I can be a little absent-minded at times, and she stirs me up with remembrances. Don't forget what I was going to do. Don't forget we're going to do this. Don't forget you said you were going to do this. You know, and, and there are times I get a little annoyed at that. She knows that. Uh, but she says this is for your good. <laughs> you know, we're sitting in a room with a whole bunch of Christians. A lot of you people have been in church your whole life. You say, well, I don't need to remember about it. Peter says you need to be reminded about it. That's what Peter says. And if Peter says you need to be reminded about it, you better listen to what Peter is saying about who Jesus is. And what he and James and John I witnessed on the Holy Mount of Transfiguration. It's the responsibility of shepherds to lead you into the word of God. That the shepherds of this church make as a high priority programming that brings you into God's word. And I don't want to use the sermon uh, as an advertisement. But simply to say, if you look at what we do as a church, much of what we do as a church is intended to invite you in and give you opportunity to engage with and interact with the Word of God. Whether that's this series coming up beginning this Wednesday night, mops that'll happen here 5 o'clock this afternoon, small groups or Bible study, Sunday school that starts the first Sunday of, um, of March uh, for adults all the way down through children, whatever it might be that we program our church in such a way 
that there is a high value placed on you coming together around God's word. Spiritual absent-mindedness is just one of the problems we face. In a time when many Christians have grown dull to the things of God. As we call you around the word of God, we need to make it accessible. We need to make it uh, understandable. And you know what else? We need to make it somewhat mysterious. I don't know if that's the best word, but that's the word I wrote down. That's the word I'm coming with. You see, for the, the past number of years, the church, pastors, seminaries, leadership has overreacted to the call for relevance. Make the preaching and teaching relevant. We need help in our day-to-day living. Well, of course that is important, but never at the expense of the mystery of faith. Calling you to the top of the holy mountain where unexplainable things happen, and yet we see the glorious glory of God in Christ, and we go to that place and we worship him. When the gospel writers tell the church about the transfiguration, they are not lacking relevance. Instead, they are deliberately telling us about the mystery of the Godhead so that we might take our eyes off of our problems down here, that we might gaze up into the glory of God now in the exalted Christ and find hope for our lives. So much of America today is about calling people to the horizontal things. This thing can help you. That thing can help you over here, over that. Connect it to your life. It'll be wonderful. It'll be good. And it just doesn't solve any real problems. And for some reason, uh, the church, and I don't just mean uh, uh, us, we always have had to battle this, but the church at large overreacted when the mystery of faith is removed, and as that mystery, as that glorious thing of our faith is removed, then we just kind of sound like everybody else, just Christianized, just tweaked a little bit, involving Jesus, a good guy. If we do not take up Jesus in the way that he is presented in all of the Scripture then we will really miss how to be relevant to the contemporary world around us. And here's how I know that's true. I told you it would be in Matthew 17 for just a bit. Go back to Matthew 17. And I want to show you this. We only read part of the story because after Jesus and the three disciples come down from the mountain... The disciples ask Jesus in verse number 11 or verse number 10, uh, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said to them, well, Elijah truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah is already come and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever uh, they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them about John the Baptist. 
You want to know how relevant the Mount of Transfiguration is? The very first thing that Jesus encounters when he comes down from the mountain is suffering and death. You want to do well in suffering and death? Get a vision of a glorious God as these disciples did. And they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist, but he was also talking about himself. In the not-too-distant vision of Jesus Christ at that moment is, in fact, his own suffering and death. And so when Peter writes this letter, he brings to remembrance what has happened in the transfiguration. And as he writes this letter, he is writing to a church that is under persecution. So this call for relevance, this call for let's remove the mystery of the faith and let's, let's get it down here, dumb it down right down here on this level, just goes against the very grain of scripture that says in the worst times of our life, when we suffer, when we're persecuted, when we're martyred, when we're facing death, we need a vision of God as God has presented in scripture. The arrangement there in Matthew 17 has to really be paid close attention to. How can anyone say that we lose relevance when we preach doctrine and a high view of God is beyond me? And in a time, in a time when conditions are ripening for increased pressure and persecution to come against the church, we need to know that the scene on the Holy Mount of Transfiguration is relevant for our faith. That it has something to say to us when we face suffering, death, persecution that is indeed going to come. That was in the not-too-distant future of Jesus. But in the immediate sight of Jesus, beginning in verse 14, they're coming now to the multitude. The other uh, disciples were left with the crowd. And a man comes, verse 14, he's kneeling down, and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. The joy of the mountaintop experience comes to an abrupt halt. Suffering and death, demonic oppression, people who are sorely vexed. To take up the challenge of Jesus is to live within the power of his cross within a world that is broken. You see, we live among people who are sorely vexed. They might be hard-working Americans. Two or three cars, snowmobiles, club memberships, taking nice vacations. They are sorely vexed in their souls. To take up the challenge of Jesus within the power of his cross is to see people for who they are, falling into all kinds of fire, falling often into the water. Why? Because the influence of evil 
is increasing in our region and is as real in the lives of people all around us as it was in the life of this child who was afflicted by a demon. It is not a philosophical evil that we face. It is an actual evil intent on destroying. And it is destroying. And unless you and I, unless the church gets a grand vision again of God, who then in Christ comes down from the mountain with his disciples and immediately gives the answer to suffering and persecution and then immediately gives the answer to human suffering, we will not be relevant to the contemporary world. I thought about this. If I were with Peter, James, and John, and I, and I heard Jesus talking about suffering, and then I see this demon-possessed man, I'm like, hey, can we just go back up on top of the mountain? <laughs> can we get back up there? I'll build some tents. Hey, I'll build all the tents you need, but can we get out of here, and can we go up there? That, that's kind of like Ken Prater would have wanted to do. But if we're going to take up the challenge of Jesus, we have to follow Jesus into the fray. I have held dear this quote from the Orthodox theologian Alexander Shememen. Uh, we'll put it up on the screen. He wrote this, We do not come to church to escape the world. Rather, uh, we come to church, when we come to church, we arrive at a vantage point. And it is from this vantage point we see more deeply into the reality of the world. When you come into this place to get a grand vision of God should then also give you the ability to look into this world and see it for as it is. Not just people with, you know, good lives, doing some good things and the bad people that show up and the police blotter we try to avoid, but you know, everybody's muddling along and we're doing okay. No, to get the right vision when we come into this church means that we then see the reality of the world in which we live. And as we go out into that world, we come down from the holy mountain and we go out into that world, we go out as the heralding community we talked about a few weeks ago. We go out placing a high value on being faithful in our lives to the ordinary things, the almost unnoticeable but incredibly important daily activities that are animated by the Holy Spirit of God. So that as those daily activities are animated, divine appointments take place, and we then speak forth and live forth the good news of what Jesus Christ can do for people's lives who are just broken by evil, destroyed by sin. And in rejecting Christ, stand condemned by the law and the prophets and under the condemnation of holy God. To do that best, we then must make a high commitment not only to uh, God, this glorious, but a high commitment and a high view to the word of God that galvanizes us together, that we are hungry to be together around and thinking in and talking about and studying. You know, when I originally planned this sermon, I was going to talk about the relationship between the personal experience and the scriptures. And I was going to kind of preach it how I'd always preached it in the past. Uh, but I was turned around as I read and I reflected 
And I began to understand that what Peter is saying uh, there in verse number 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, is not a strike against his experience. But what he is saying is that all of the scriptures that he learned throughout his life in the synagogue now confirmed by what he saw in Jesus Christ. Just as we studied God's word, but we always look back at Christ and say, what we are studying, they're not cunningly devised fables. They are real because Jesus Christ is real. He is the Lord and King of all things. And so, you know, so, well, that doesn't interest me. I'm not going to go to study. That doesn't interest me. I'm not going to go to that Bible. So that doesn't interest me. How can you not be interested in Christ? How can you not want to be galvanized as a community around Christ revealed in his word? What Peter calls a more sure word of prophecy that the church had better pay attention to. And Peter says, I'm dying soon. I'm going to remind you of this. I'm putting off this body. And you need to be reminded that the experience we had in Christ is an invalid because the word of God now fully given. The word of God is validated by the experience of what we saw in Jesus Christ. So will you take up the challenge of Jesus? You see, there is a light shining in this dark world that we had better pay attention to. Or we, like the world, will find ourselves lost and groping around for a way out. And it must have been, it must have been an incredible thing to be with Jesus and see the glorious glory of his divinity bursting through his humanity. And it must have been hard to hear about the coming persecution, to see the horror of demonic possession. But if you and I are going to take up the challenge of Jesus, we must be willing to go with Jesus into each and every reality that is presented before us. And I pray that we might do that, that we might go together, and then as we do, we arrive at this place that Peter describes as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawn. And the day star rise in our hearts. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask, oh God, that you would be gracious to us. In helping us to apprehend it. To uh, surrender to it. And to be transformed by it. Even now as we come uh, to the blessed table of our Lord be strengthened by these elements. We thank you for the gospel of grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.